Is it on? Or, yeah, now it's on. Wow, yay. Yeah, I actually kind of like technology, but not this technology. It's going to fall off, I'm telling you. All right, well, what a wonderful day to be here worshiping the Lord. What a great collection of worship songs to be singing. Um, and, of course, without any planning, they tie in exactly with what I'm going to talk about today, which is the way that God's Holy Spirit works. Um, one thing, though, before we start, um, it has come to the elders' attention that there are a number of new babies in the congregation, and we have not had a baby dedication in quite some time. And so we want to do that. So if you have one of those little babies and you want to be de have it dedicated, we would love to do that either as a group or individually, depending upon what you feel like doing. Because um, I know sometimes we like to invite relatives and grandparents and folks like that. So uh, get in touch with one of us or Miriam, and then we will, we will schedule that. Well, the title up there is Be Prepared. Uh, we have been talking about defending ourselves and the church against the world, and that we are, in fact, at war. And I have avoided talking specifically about those things of the world because I believe that the only way to fight this war is with the word. Now, I know I promised this whole thing on critical justice and BLM and all those other things, and I have to tell you that as I was preparing that, uh, God's Spirit said, you know, that's kind of like teaching and like a lecture series, and that's different than preaching. Um, preaching involves God's word and God's gospel. And so last week I touched on how to fight this battle. Today I'm going to talk about how to fight the battle with maybe one or two examples. Um, and then next week um, we're going to start on Colossians. And I'm going to do, we're going to preach through the book of Colossians um, this fall, possibly the winter. Um, and Colossians, surprisingly enough, Colossians, as is true of almost every New Testament uh, uh, letter, is about heresy and false teachers. Okay? But I love Colossians because there's so many life verses in there that I, that, that I refer to when I'm in trouble. And so we're going to, to talk about that book. Paul taught the Colossians how to fight this good fight by reminding them of the truth not by deconstructing the world's smooth talk. <laughs> you know, um, the Internet is an amazing thing. It really is. I mean, there are some people on there that are just so funny. They have no right to be that funny. They just made me laugh. But there are other things that, that get me mad sometimes. And I saw today a, um, a quote from Ibram Kendi, who is um, the kind of the leader of the critical social justice movement. He's a black man. Um, that believes in um, liberation theology. And just as an example of what we're talking about today, he says, well, this Jesus was not all about white evangelism. He was a revolutionary, and he preached the overthrow of the Roman government and the Babylonian Empire back then, and that what he wants today is for us to be revolutionaries and to throw off the oppression of the culture that we live in. And I wonder whether he's ever read the Bible whatsoever. Because, in fact, Jesus did not say that, but that appeals to a lot of people because he's talking about writing injustices. And so people, it's a great example, a current example of someone trying to take the gospel or take God's word and twist it to accomplish some sort of a political purpose. And so Paul, though, 
didn't really talk about the specific social theories of the day. He talked about the, the heresies of the day, the Gnosticism, the belief in knowledge as opposed to spirituality, talked about legalism by the Jews. But he wanted them to be in battle, but he didn't want the Colossians, and he doesn't want us, nor does the Holy Spirit want us, to be hunkered down in their homes watching the latest abominations on TV or on the Internet. Pick up your cross daily, he shouts along with Jesus, and follow me. That's what he wants us to do. I do a devotional every morning. This was a quote from it. It says, we live in an age of anxiety and irrational fears press in to steal the joy of God's people. We are afraid of the enemies that oppress us. We are afraid of the God that we have forgotten how to fear. We say, alas, we've messed everything up. We've done everything wrong. And God says, I will be your peace if you will be obedient and be lights to the pagans around you. Well, today we're going to talk about 1 John and some other things. But 1 John 2, verses 12 through 14 says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let us pray. Father, your word is truth. Your word is the way to joy, to life, to eternal life with you, to a reconciliation of our relationship with you. Lord, we pray that you would find the meditations of my heart and the words of my lips acceptable to you, Lord, and pray that you would teach these people today everything that you would want them to know about you and your word. Amen. Well, John wrote this letter, 1 John, to, to uh, it's a general letter, it's to a number of congregations across Asia, and he speaks authoritatively as one who had witnessed about the truth of the Incarnation. He knew Jesus Christ. He walked with Jesus Christ. He saw the crucifixion. He saw the resurrection. And he was saying that these people that he's writing to, these members of these unnamed churches in Asia, that they should evidence the sound doctrine, obedience, and love that characterizes all Christians, or they're not really Christians at all. Pretty harsh words, but that's what he said. And so how do we fight this good fight like John urged his congregations? How do we evidence sound doctrine, obedience, and love in this world around us as we face these slings and arrows that are being shot at us by men like I just quoted to you before who tell lies, who tell lies? Well, first, do you believe in God? Spurgeon says the favorites of heaven are, in every case, people who believe in God. He was commenting on Galatians 3.7 there. And we're not talking here about simply believing that there is a God. Satan believes there's a God. We're talking about believing in him. The second song that we sang was wonderful for that, the Revelation song, about who God is and who Jesus Christ is. And, uh, and it just offered such great worship to him. We're talking about believing in God, who he is, what he is, what he says, what he does. Eli, a while back, preached about the attributes of God. The Bible describes God as creator, as judge of everyone, as savior, as merciful, master, lord, 
strength, infinite, good, love, holy, healer, almighty, and the list goes on and on. Those are all the attributes of God. That's who God is. That's who we are to believe in, not some sterile dispenser of justice or answerer of prayers. God is all of those things, and he wants to be all of those for each and every one of us. But do we believe these things about God? Have we forgotten how to fear our God? Last week, we talked about the true gospel, the need to communicate to people that they and we are sinners, and that the price of sin is eternal damnation in hell. Now, that's a message which is often sugar-coated in our churches and certainly in our culture, but it's true. It is true. Even Jesus talks about this. The God who called everything into existence through his mere spoken word, he spoke and it was. I mean, that's pretty incredible if you try to wrap your mind around it. He has promised also the same God to punish those who engage in sin with everlasting torment and fire. And our only escape from that punishment is faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. That is our only escape in that. This is an overwhelming God, one who is beyond our ability to understand, and certainly one who is beyond our ability to control and to manage. But this is exactly what we try to do. We try to make him a little bit smaller so we can understand him. We say, oh, I get that. I understand how that works. So that we can figure them out. So we can make everything fit into those little boxes in our heads about what everything's supposed to be related and how it's all supposed to fit together. But what does it really mean to believe in God, to have faith? To have faith. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. What does it mean to believe in God and to live for his glory? We certainly find lessons in faith from the Old Testament. In the book of Hebrews, the Hall of Fame of Faith lists many individuals who had faith in God and believed in God and in his promises. One of my favorite giants of the faith is David, a profoundly flawed man. But even though he was flawed with many faults and sins, he was a man with a pure passion for the glory of God among all the people of the nations. From his first recorded words in the Bible to when he went to slay the giant Goliath to his last words on his deathbed, he preached God's glory. In 1 Samuel 17, 46, when he's getting ready to go out and face Goliath, he says, this day, he's talking to Goliath, this day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. Okay, pretty strong words for a little kid against a big guy. Okay, but now think about ourselves in this position, you know, little people in the presence of intellectual giants who look to deconstruct us. Anyway, I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in heaven, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Did you catch that? Why did he strike down Goliath? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. For the glory of this God of the universe. The very first words recorded that David said in the Bible is his life purpose that all the earth may know that there is a God and that he might give him glory. But then there's more. David's last words in 2 Samuel 22:50. He's on his deathbed. His last words, therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations, and I will sing praises to your name. 
David's first and last recorded words in the Bible demonstrated his pure passion for the glory of the Lord. He was a man after God's own heart because he was all about God's glory. Are we men and women after God's own heart? Are we all about God's glory? Well, secondly, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Again, not just believing that Jesus existed. Are you believing the revealed Jesus in God's word or some Jesus of your own understanding? See, the world tries to constantly remake Jesus according to what it wants. The Jews wanted a political Messiah that would lead a rebellion. Today, some want a Jesus who will give us whatever we ask so that our lives will be materially blessed. Others want a Jesus who's a good moral teacher. Still others want a Jesus who will solve all of our social problems without confronting our pesky sin. Some want a Jesus who says, why can't we all just get along? A disciple, a true disciple, doesn't define Jesus according to what he wants or what he feels is true. A disciple is someone who accepts that the word that Jesus spoke are directly from the Father and are true. It's believing in the Jesus revealed by the Father and not by the Jesus of our own understanding. Only the Jesus revealed by the Father can solve our greatest problem, which is sin. By humbling ourselves and accepting who Jesus is, we stop trying to make a Jesus of our own liking. See, and only then will we be able to think biblically when confronted with this culture of ours, with the forces of darkness and evil which are arrayed against us. People will try to soften who Jesus is and what he means. We're warned against those people and those spirits. And again, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, because this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Well, if he's in the world back at the time of John, he's still in the world now. Still in the world now. John wrote that to the churches because there was a heresy being preached that Jesus was not the incarnation of God. And in fact, Jesus was not actually a human being, but was a spirit. That was a fairly prevalent heresy, fitted well with the Greek and Roman understanding of the spiritual world back then. And John warned that the world was going to deny that there was anything special or unique about Jesus, and that we can find a savior in other people or in other things, like today, like medicine, science, government. People look for them to be their saviors. How about hope we can believe in? That was a savior a while back, except it was not, because it was not hope in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And it didn't work then, and it will never work, because saving power comes only from Jesus Christ, and it saves us from our sins. 1 John 4, 13 through 15 says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And then also he says, John says at five, chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, that for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. We all overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
That's what overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And then at verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That is the word of God. That is what he tells us. The forces of evil are always going to lie about who Jesus is and what he did. They will admit that there is a Jesus. John lets us know that the critical truth is that there is no approach to the true and living God except through his son, Jesus. Our goal is not just to understand this for ourselves, but to understand the stakes for those people who are around us, our neighbors, our friends, our relatives. They need to know the truth about Jesus. They need to know this. And how will they know unless someone tells them? And who's going to tell them if it's not us? So, do you believe in Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate, and that God gave us eternal life through our faith and belief in his Son and his Son's saving work? Because if you do not, it is time today to get on your knees and beg God to reveal the true Jesus to you so that you can be armed against the forces of evil which are arrayed against us and against you. Remember that God promises us, promises us, when you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. But all your heart, not part of your heart, all of your heart. Well, third, do you believe the word? The false prophets, the antichrist, the evil forces in the world will try to distract you from the word, from the good news of the gospel. Know that the world is not neutral. I'm sure that doesn't come as a surprise to everyone. But we are not the only missionaries out there. We are being evangelized by the world every day, whether we realize it or not. We are wooed, courted, pursued, romanced by the world. Let us be guarded in what we listen to and what we believe and not flattered by the attention. And let us cling closely to the word. In Matthew Henry's Bible commentary, Henry offers a simple yet brilliant illustration the line which shows itself to be straight <clears throat> also shows which line is crooked. Truth and falsehood do not mix and suit do not well mix and suit together. Those that are well acquainted with Christian truth are thereby well fortified against anti-Christian error and delusion. Trying to mix the truth of God's word with worldly ideas that sound true simply doesn't work. We are equipped when we know God's word and we know the truth. And what did the real prophets say in the Old Testament when they railed against injustice, oppression, failure to care for orphans, widows, and immigrants, did they urge the king to establish laws to feed the poor and nurse the sick? No. Their message to the people was, you have sinned against the Lord, repent of your sins, return to God, and he will forgive your sins. Matthew Henry's quote makes clear to us as followers of Jesus Christ that we have an innate ability to be able to discern truth from lies. Now, this comes not as a result of our own intellect or logic or smarts or having figured the mysteries of the Bible out, but rather by the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is critical in enabling us to identify what is false in the world out there. In today's world, we see many, and unfortunately many in the church, trying to mix the truth of God's word with worldly ideas that sound true. And this simply does not work. 
truth is not subject to popular opinion, does not need to be updated to fit cultural norms. If that was true, we would have no solid foundation upon which to build our lives. God has given us his unchanging word, which is truth, and it is the plumb line against which we can measure all crooked lines. See, the problem with the world standards is that it's an ever-changing, moving target, which doesn't provide comfort to us. This principle was put on display recently by the American Civil Liberties Union, a friend of everyone who believes in civil liberties, right? Um, they put on a graphic on Twitter with a quote from one of its most famous former employees, the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Okay? The quote dealt with the centrality of abortion as being essential to freedom and autonomy. And what the quote, the original quote read, the decision whether or not to bear a child is central to a woman's life, to her well-being and dignity. It is a decision she must make for herself. When the government controls that decision for her, she is being treated less than as a full human adult responsible for her own choices. Well, setting aside the absolute falsity and absurdity of that statement, the ACLU then, having posted that, censored its darling Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Because why? Well, she used the word woman, and she used the pronoun her, and she used the pronoun she. Well, you're laughing, but they posted online a censored version of Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote, the decision whether or not to bear a, central is central, uh, bear a child is central to, not a woman's life, a person's life, to not her well-being, but to their well-being and dignity. When the government controls that decision for people, they are being treated as less than a fully adult human responsible for their own choices. Well, an always moving target is the way of the world's false religion and philosophy. And it changes all the time. It changes all the time. And if we look at that to someone who is revered by these people who would seek to attack the church, and they would do that to one of their own, what kind of lies are they going to engage in as far as us? With the world, what was true and celebrated yesterday is not true, and it's vilified today. As the hymn says, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Of course, this takes us right back to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus preached about the wise and foolish builders. Only those who build their houses on the solid rock of Jesus Christ will be standing when the last trumpet sounds. The rest will not. So what's the application of all this for us? Well, one thing, I believe, is don't be sucked into the world's agenda and its terminology. Don't be enticed onto their playing field. Because what are our rules of engagement? What rules of engagement does God give us? God wants us to be holy. Why does he want us to be holy? So that he can live among us. And why does he want to live among us? So that he can bless us. And why does he want to bless us? So that we can bless all the people on the earth. That was Abraham's calling. And why is that? So that they will worship him. And why is that? To fulfill prophecy. And why? so that the king will come back to reign and restore all things. That is our purpose statement. That's the application for us. Those are our rules of engagement. And notice that the purpose of man is to glorify God. God is glorified through his church. We must take back the church. We must get back to the word, the gospel, and telling people about Jesus Christ. We must guard against arrogance and against being more clever than those who seek to attack us. 
we must know the word. We must know the gospel. We must not be afraid to tell people about Jesus Christ. Yes, eyes will roll and you will be ridiculed, but it is the truth. We do get into trouble when we try to speak in the world's language. Josh McDowell, who many of you probably know about, got into trouble this week by doing that. Why are we as Christians trying to debate the world on its own terms? Well, we need to take a stand and fight, that is for sure. But our weapons are spiritual. They are the word, and we need to use it. It may seem to the world silly and simplistic, but to us, it is the word of life. Satan and the Antichrist bait us into these conversations to neuter us. When we angrily respond, what happens to our holiness? What happens to our walk with the Lord? What does that anger do? The anger of a man does not produce the righteousness that God wants, that God requires. We cannot know the language of the world because we are not of the world. We get tied up trying to understand and argue these secular principles which circulate around us like critical race theory or post-colonialism or post-modernism. But if you stick to the gospel and to the word, it has the answers to life. Look to the examples of the heroes of faith. Daniel, Noah, Shadrach and his friends, Nehemiah. They shared what was in their hearts and minds about the glory of God with the leaders around them and with their contemporaries. They did not buy into the world's trickery. They combated injustice with the word of God. Their lives and their actions, not their political theories, had an impact for the glory of God. When Daniel was faced with a law prohibiting prayer to anyone besides Nebuchadnezzar, what did he do? Did he protest? Did he argue? No. He went home, drew his curtains, got on his knees, and prayed to the God of the universe. For that, he was punished. But he did not go out and protest. Shadrach and his friends, same thing. Our God will save us, but even if he does not, we will not serve false gods. Esther, a gracious spirit pouring out her heart to the king about the tragedy which was going to befall her people. Nehemiah, a cupbearer to Xerxes, tormented by the suffering of the returning exiles, and he shared his suffering. The king says, why are you sad? He says, because my people are not doing well. And the king let him go back. Wouldn't Noah built the ark? Built the ark. How about you? Does your life have an impact for Christ? Are you discipling anyone? Are you mentoring anyone? As you sit here, look to the left and look to the right and say, Do I know that person? Am I familiar with that person? What's going on in their life? Are you having an impact in taking an interest in people, encouraging other Christians, equipping, listening? The people sitting around you and in the world around you are at different stages in their life, and you can have a different impact on every one of them in some fashion. So 1 John 2, 12-14 says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Well, many commentators have written about the meaning of the different descriptions given to the different people in that passage. Uh, But I believe John describes here the stages of spiritual growth to challenge believers to grow still more in their Christian walk. 
in his high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, Jesus prays that believers would know God not in a superficial way, nor in an academic sense, but with supernatural intimacy, made possible only by lifetime obedience to him and his word. And John reiterates that here. Now, I am not saying that, a spirit, that spiritual growth determines a believer standing before God, or that God's love is different for different people based upon where they are spiritually. He does not love mature saints more than he loves less mature saints, and spiritual growth is unrelated to the amount of theological information we have. I myself had a large amount of biblical and theological knowledge, yet was quite immature spiritually. I like to study, I like to figure things out, but that didn't mean that I was spiritually mature. And it's dangerous because the more knowledge we have and do not apply, the more deceived we become about our own spiritual condition. And very importantly, spiritual growth is not mystical. It's not sentimental. It's not psychological. It's the result of taking in food in the way of God's truth, believing it and applying it. And, and as we take in this truth through God's word and in our relationship with other believers. Now, clearly, not all believers are in the same stage of spiritual maturity. Some are spiritual infants. Some are spiritual adults. And in this section of Scripture, John offers a general reassurance to all believers that you know that your sins have been forgiven to you, and then gives specific assurance to those at each general stage of spiritual growth. Little children, young men, fathers. The little children may not know all of the theology there is to know, but they do know this. Their sins are forgiven. They know the Father. Their youthful enthusiasm for the gospel refreshes the church. Who cannot be inspired by a baptism like we had several weeks ago or the testimony of a new believer? It's great. It really energizes us. Now, fathers are mentioned here as those who know him. Now, remember what God said about seeking him with all of our heart. We will find them. Fathers are those who have spent their time and their lives getting to know God. And the know here is an intimate knowledge, much like that between a husband and a wife, not a, oh, I know about it kind of thing. These fathers are the more seasoned and mature saints who have a lifetime of experience with God and are marked by this wisdom. They're not new blood, but they provide the structure of the faith. They're not swayed by false winds of doctrine or cultural currents. They're our pillars. They lead by example. They're disciple makers and mentors. Fathers are the bones that keep things straight and stable for the church body. We have both here. We have children. We have fathers here. Young men commended for having overcome the evil one and for having the word of God abiding in them. They are between the infants and the fathers. They're prepared. They're ready to engage the enemy on the battlefield of faith. Think of the young men that are ready to throw down at any provocation, right? Well, these are the young men of faith who are ready to throw down for the gospel. They are the athletes, the warriors. They are the muscle of the church. So a devotional which I've been reading with Nick Waldron every day, about 1 John, points out that the blood, bones, and muscle are just as necessary in the church body as in our physical bodies. Spiritual children must move beyond their initial delight in the Father's love to a sound knowledge of biblical truth. Young men must not rest in their knowledge of biblical truth, but dedicate themselves to know deeply the God from whom all truth comes and to whom all truth points. And fathers must continue to expand and deepen their knowledge of the eternal God. Fathers, and we're talking about spiritual mothers here as well, must dedicate themselves to being blessings to others and to bear fruit for the Lord. 
Now, we're blessed by God by having the strengths of each type of Christian in this church, but we must encourage one another. We must build one another up in love and service to thrive in whatever stage that we are in. And as we observe all three of these, wherever we fit in, it's amazing to recognize the lifelong journey that is the Christian life. So be prepared. The best protection against the slings and arrows of the world is to live obediently to the word of Jesus Christ. We do this by knowing God, knowing Jesus, and knowing the word. Part of that involves being part of a church, to contribute your time and yourself to all that is needed in the church. If you're a father, find a young man to mentor, to come alongside, to teach, to listen, to pour into their life, to be a blessing to them. If you're a child or a young man, look for someone older, someone that knows more. The thing about discipling, which I was told very early on, is that to be a discipler, you only need to be one step ahead of the person that you're discipling. You don't need to be an expert. So there's a lot that's needed in the church. might be property maintenance. I'm always making a press for that here. might include training, mentoring young believers. Each one of us has something to offer, and we're commanded by Jesus to offer it. He is coming again. He is coming again. We do not want to be caught unprepared when he comes again. God has given us all we need to serve him and to be prepared for his coming. John says later, um, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. I, for one, do not want to be shrinking back from God at his coming. I, do not, for one, do not want to have no answer to his question, what did, you give, what did you do with what I gave you? Because he wants us to do something with it. This anointing that John talks about is the Holy Spirit that we receive from Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says in Revelation 16, 15, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. The Psalms tell us, at 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It is our duty as followers of Jesus Christ to preserve the foundations of his church, this church. Yes, it is Christ's church. Yes, he founded it 2,000 years ago. It is his to save, and he will save it. It is in God's hands. But we as Christians play a role in the survival and continuing impact of the church of Jesus Christ. Erwin Lutzer, who was the pastor at Moody Church for 36 years, has written a book recently called We Will Not Be Silenced. And he tells us as churches to consider what Jesus wrote to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. Jesus commended that church for its commitment to the truth, their good works, their endurance. And then Jesus says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But then Jesus drops a bomb. And he says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Well, those are scary words. Yes, the church was not theirs to save, and yet its continuation was dependent upon whether they returned to their first love through repentance and good deeds. And as Lutzer points out, apparently they did not, 
And the lampstand was removed because there has not been a church in Ephesus for many, many centuries. We are a faithful church here of Jesus Christ, not because of preaching, but because we are faithful and true to Jesus Christ, our first love. God wants us to join him in returning to our first love and lighting many lampstands. We must remain diligent about sustaining the church as a beacon of light, the lighthouse, that shines in the darkness of today's secularism and humanism. We must approach Christ in humility and faith and obey him, because on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all the ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, show us the way to seek you with all our heart, that we may come to know you, and that we may come to know Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, the one who provides the only means for reconciliation with you. And help us to know your word. <clears throat> help us to continue to study, to build each other up, to come alongside people, to, to help them and to be helped, Lord God. We pray that you would continue to show us the way to worship this day and the days to come, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.